Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 70, The New Lions. As we talked about in the past, through the 9th century, the Murphian line arose from basically out of nowhere, possibly the Isle of Man. We've Obviously, as we've discussed many, many times, we don't know exactly where. From there, we had Rodri the Great, and after that, the sons of Rodri, who basically spread havoc throughout Wales, controlling and dominating most of the Welsh kingdoms at some point or other. And if they didn't, their descendants certainly had. In all of this point, um, as we've seen this happen, there have been challenges along the way. Many of these challenges coming from outside sources, but sometimes even from internal sources, internal combatants and competitors, trying to take back what had been taken from them, or in some cases revolting against the rule of these descendants of Murfin. However, no one really ever succeeded against them to this point. No one had ever been able to throw them off permanently, and no one had ever been really able to stop them in dominating most of Wales, and in some cases all of Wales. However, this time as leader of the pride, shall we say, or leader of the pack, in every situation there comes a point where that leadership is challenged. And when that leadership is challenged, how the pride reacts to that challenge becomes very important. And we're going to talk about one of the leading challengers and one that will actually come to dominate Wales for the better part of a century. And then, of course, adopt and adapt the Murphian line back into their own and try and basically say that they too are descendants of the Murphian line. So thus, it didn't ever go extinct or out of existence. And so this kind of thing will continue on after this. But let's talk about it from what we're going to really point out, which is that this line does stop shortly after this, and there really isn't a return to that line, at least not on the patronymics of the situation. And we'll get into why that is and, and what the justification is for why that is, and why there seems to be a need to point yourself back to that line all the time for the Welsh kings going forward after this. In 1018... As we had talked about previously, a few episodes ago, Llewellyn ap Sisil was alone on the throne of Gwyneth, a paragon of the new regime and in all likelihood a new face for the old land. This was a new king, of course. He may have claimed some sort of descent to the Mervian line by his mother, but that link is a later invention, at least from what we can understand, something of a 12th century uh, invention. It didn't exist in the written claims that he had made and had been made by his propagandists, but certainly it is something that was later used to justify various things that went on. And certainly, as we said earlier, to try and create a link back to the old and back to the old ways. We see the same sort of thing happen with Murfin coming to the throne. He claims to be a descendant out of the same, or at least his ancestry claims he is a descendant from this older line that had always existed as the head of the country known as Gwyneth or the kingdom known as Gwyneth. So this is a fine, normal thing to do as a Welsh king. You 
adopted yourself into the line, if that adoption didn't exist in reality, it didn't matter as long as you could prove, even with a shadow of a doubt, that's all it took. And certainly that was important to them and that mattered. So this, of course, would be what makes him, in the eyes of others, a worthy king. But the reality is his merit is what made him a worthy king. He actually won the throne. He defeated his enemies. He didn't seem to be a problem child king, at least on the face of what we can see. And we'll talk more about why that is. And so in that respect, he may have been more worthy than the ones he replaced. But we don't know because the information during this period is really sparse. And it only starts to grow again after this point. Because we know that from about 1004 to 1018, we didn't have a lot of information. There wasn't a lot to go on. So you didn't have a great deal of backing as to what was going on in Wales at this point in time. So we only really know after Llewellyn gets there and starts to actually create the new reality that we actually know what's going on again. By 1022, he's looking to secure a much wider hegemony within Wales. His title became both King of Gwyneth and King of All Britons. In the Welsh Chronicle, or the Annals, this was seen as an ambition for greater things. Quite often, in fact, they labeled better known or more successful kings as king of all Britain, even though, of course, the reality of that was negligible at best. It may have been 600 years since the Romans had left Britain, but the idea of uniting their former subjects was still the ambitions of the kings of Wales, or at least the preferred goal in why they took the title. It really hadn't been a thing of any particular use, probably since about the time of Gildas. I mean, we're talking most of these people wouldn't have had any point to look at to say, oh yeah, we're united. In fact, Wales itself to this point had never been fully united. So there was nothing to say that any of them should be called King of Britain, but that was something that was done. Now, whether they meant the kings of all Britain referring to just Wales becomes a question as well, because that they had a tendency to call Cornwall West Britain, and they had a tendency to look at the Old North in a different way. And by this point, most of what they considered to be the Old North is gone. And there's only just sort of the memory of the Old North as the Picts, the Scots, and now the English were all fighting for possessions that were at one time what made up the Old North. Um, so this kind of created part of the issue. As well, marriages were a method of securing territory or control or creating alliances, which, of course, proved very fruitful during the medieval period. This is a very common thing that would happen amongst kings. They would marry off their daughters to all sorts of princes and kings to try and create all of these previously mentioned ideas with the idea of creating a new secure relationship, which seemed to be at the heart of these political marriages. And in this case, in the political marriage of Llewellyn to Angharad, the daughter of Marduth, which would link him into the Murphian throne. And if true, and I have no reason to think it isn't true, then you have at least that 
papering over of a link. But the reality is, is that again, as we've talked about in the past, the Welsh didn't look at the matrilineal line when it came to kings. They didn't count largely. But when you didn't have a king who was from the right line, then being able to at least point back at matrilineally to things at least helps you a little. So this is kind of what they did. And in this case, that's definitely what they were doing. And of course, again, we have people writing after the fact. So one of the other problems here maybe is that they're trying to justify Griffith and his descendants. And the way to do that is to link his father to the previously reigning line. Last month, we discussed how this led to his battle with the so-called pretender to the throne of the South, this suspected Irishman who had rose against the proper government of Wales and had to be put down. But legitimately, we don't actually know that this person was ever Irish. That whole tale is told after the fact and isn't even told in the lifetime of Llewellyn. So it could easily have been one of the descendants of Merduth who's competing for the throne, who then they want to throw, you know, as much shade on, to use a more modern term, uh, as possible, and thus avoid having this other contender to the throne look legitimate. And certainly after his victory, Llewellyn seems to have settled into a much more familiar and peaceful phase, briefly anyway. After the ravages of war, he offers grants to various churches. He seeks to rebuild, um, likely to ease his soul on his death for the destruction he caused. That's a very common thing to do in the medieval period. One way to save yourself from purgatory and from, from hell for the things you've done wrong is, of course, to give gifts to the church, be that land, money help with buildings, do various things, give them tax benefits. I mean, it, it was a very common thing, let's just put it that way, in that era. And it uh, gave you a little bit of benefit, and it will become a bigger thing as we go along in this story. But for the moment, that's kind of where it starts in this whole idea. And uh, I guess what we can say is that the Welsh annals seem to bear out that his propaganda won out, and likely... Because he was so generous, those who then wrote the history were generous to him. And of course, who writes these histories? Well, of course, it's the clerics and the church. So obviously, his donations, his kindnesses, his largesses towards them would become, A, something to write about. Because let's be honest, the clerics only really know what's happening with themselves. They don't necessarily know about the wider world or understand the day-to-day -day needs of a peasant. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. 
Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. in their community to the same degree as they would know their own existence and their own problems and their own concerns. And much like that the Viking raids were always sort of an overblown thing because it was happening mostly to churches, so it was made to act sometimes like they were pagans who were coming to ruin all of Christianity when rather it was more about the fact that they were robbing the churches because the churches were these easy banks they could go into with no security and take all the money and so that rather than a castle which had guards and soldiers and protection so those are the kind of things that we kind of run into is you're dealing with not just that the winners are writing the story but a very particular type of winner is writing the story and of course their perspective is going to count more than some other perspectives so it also shows why we have so little on the women in this world at this point where there's no real stories of of the princesses and the queens and their opinions or their movements and motives because a lot of the writers aren't female so thus they're not going to be writing from that perspective they don't have that perspective and don't understand that perspective so unfortunately we're left with a lot of male point of views because of this so this is kind of where a lot of this begins. However, only a year later in 1023, Llewellyn was dead. And four years later, his brother Kinnan had also been killed. Now, of course, later writers will blame this on uh, other people. And we'll get a little bit more into this conspiracy theory in a bit. But we have, again, no evidence of it. It's past that point so we don't have strictly reality we have probably myth making or possibly stories that have been handed down which may or may not be true uh, depending on your point of view so it's harder to say it's harder to be sure so I don't want to get into speculation with that as much um, and so one of the things that happens out of this is uh, Friedrich uh, the king of Glamorgan becomes the king of Doithbarth. And for the first time in the written memory, 
The kings of the southeast also control the southwest of Wales. The Book of Llandaff goes farther by claiming that all of Wales fell under his leadership, but most academics figure that's either a flourish or at the very least wishful thinking. It's hard to be 100% certain on that simply because there is no obvious king in the north at this point, and there is what appears to be a vacuum in leadership there, so we don't actually know for sure, but we think at least that he was the king of the south, and maybe he does have a claim to have been the king of all of Wales, at least briefly, um, because things will degrade rapidly after this, as has happened pretty much since the beginning of this century and before even. In the meantime, in England, Canute becomes the first Viking king, and with him he brings Elaf, who in 1024 is purported to come to Wales seeking to, in quotes, lay waste, uh, as it was described in the annals, but more likely to pillage and raid. Some academics feel that part of the reason for this is Elaf may have actually been Ilifri Thorgelson, who was an ally of Canute, who also happens to have been an ally of Merduth and Huel, the sons of the previous kings of Gwyneth and of Doithbarth. And they may have not, he may have not been super happy to see his allies lose their place and thus also lose their ability to pay him. So in this way, to get maybe some of his payment back that he was likely owed, he may have done what most Vikings do in that occasion and start raiding. And the reality of it is this is not uncommon for this to happen. Vikings were hired as mercenaries quite frequently, and so they end up fighting on both sides of wars, even against other Vikings. And so likely he may have been hired gun to deal with their grievance, and then at the defeat of that group, turned around and decided to take some of his own from that. Uh, he eventually flees to England, and then after the death of Canute in 1035, he actually flees England as well. And then we never hear about him again. And in that respect, he only makes a very brief appearance in our record, but it's enough of a one to get a note about it. Of course, with the death of Llewellyn, the leadership in the north and south of Wales returns to the hands of the line of Murfin. First, Iago Ab Idwell gains the throne, and the sources again have this change happening later. Um, because there is this absence of who the leader is in the north until 1033, we don't know when Iago took over. Meanwhile, the sons of Edwin, the other brother, um, Huel and Merdoth, who we mentioned earlier, defeat Friedrich. Uh, in 1033. And this would give us plausibility, going back to our comment earlier, as to why Wales may have been dominated by the Southern King for nearly a decade, because it's 1033 that becomes the distinguishing point when these groups seem to take back over. Uh, there are some older academics from the Tudor period that describe the downfall of Kinnan and Llewellyn as a dirty deed of Huel and Merduth, but there's no written or circumstantial evidence of this happening. There's no comment in the period that this ever happened. This is just susposition, and especially with older academics coming out of periods where they didn't have the same rigor of research, 
um, specifically out of the Tudor period, which is a a monarchy that claimed Welsh descendancy. So thus they would have a vested interest to show certain things. This might be a reason why this was tilted the way it was. Um, we don't really know why that argument was ever made. Uh, and certainly there was nothing coming out of later writers before that that said that it had ever been the case. But nonetheless, that accusation has been made. And in the Welsh history, there's no reason not to think that there may have been that going on. But it's it's unfounded, so we don't have any clue. So while Iago seems to have kept esteem enough to be left alone, Meredith was not so lucky. And according to the annals, he was the first of killed, and in this case by the sons of Cynan, who may have been seeking revenge in this period. So by 1035, only Huel and Iago remain as leaders in charge of the two biggest kingdoms in Wales. And there would remain an uneasy peace in Wales for the next few years, but it was short, and not even half a decade in length. And as problems would be created later by the Norman invasion of Anglo-Saxon England, this stability in Wales at this point just appears to be impossible. From Saxons, Vikings, and fellow Welsh, they all seem to fight over these kingdoms from this period, constantly bickering and trying to grab control. And really, this only starts to change when Gruffydd, the son of Llewellyn, comes along. And Gruffydd is going to be a massive figure in Welsh history and is going to be the first proper king of Wales we ever have, and really probably the last. And he is huge in his footprint on Wales. He becomes the first of our kings who actually has a biography about him. He becomes the first king to receive attention to be written about consistently by other sources outside of Wales. He is an important figure in the high medieval period, and he will be someone we're going to talk in depth about in the next episode. So stay tuned, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me online at Welsh History Pod on Twitter, or you can come on our Facebook and ask questions there if you want at Welsh History Pod, Facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And certainly, if there's anything else you have interest in the content that we provide, you can check everything else we do at distractionsmedia.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming along on the ride. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Bye bye. Edge of the Abyss Creations is a proud sponsor of the Welsh History Podcast, your one-stop shop for unique jewellery, paintings, and other crafty creations. You can find us at facebook.com slash edgeoftheabyss1. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. 
The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.